All right, let's turn back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, this morning. And as I was contemplating a series of sermons on the first advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I came across a little book by Daniel Darling called The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And the author compiled a devotional on what we might call the cameo appearances of those whom God chose to be a part of his son's entrance into the world. And other than Mary, these characters are only found in the first two chapters of either Matthew or Luke. And they include Zechariah and Elizabeth, who we looked at last Sunday, Joseph, Simeon and Anna, King Herod, the Magi, the innkeeper, the shepherds, and of course, the angels. So Mary, although a simple peasant girl, takes center stage in the narrative. And she alone uh, does have some other cameo appearances in the life of Jesus, the Messiah. You'll remember that she is present at his first miracle in the town of uh, Cana, where there is a a wedding feast held. And in that story, uh, she does speak only, uh, I think, 11 words in the English language. Uh, And that's the only time where she speaks other than what we find here in the Gospels, telling Jesus uh, that they had run out of wine and telling the servants to do whatever he told them to do. She is also present later when the family comes to visit Jesus during one of his uh, ministry tours, trying to get him to slow down, to come back home, because in their thinking, he's beside himself. She is present at the cross when Jesus tells the apostle John that he is to care for his mother Mary, And she is with the other women at the scene of the tomb as they come and they prepare or want to prepare uh, the Lord Jesus' body for uh, uh, permanent burial. And this morning, we want to observe some aspects of her character in response to the angel Gabriel announcing that she's going to become the mother of Jesus the Messiah. And in this passage, it's clear that Mary is another willing vessel God uses to move his program of redemption forward. Her humility is apparent here as she calls herself the maidservant or the handmaid of the Lord. Excuse me. And she's an example to us that ordinary folks, ordinary people of low estate, may be used of God to perform the tasks that he calls them to do. But we're also going to focus on what the angel says about the Lord Jesus himself, and we're reminded of his unique nature uh, as the Son of God and his miraculous entrance into the world and his deity and his future dominion on this uh, eternal throne. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we are again thankful for the word of God conveying to us how you would come into the world and become a man so that you could save mankind. 
And Lord, help us uh, through the Christmas season to keep this truth in focus. We're also thankful, Lord, for the characters that you chose in history to bring about your program. Characters like Mary, a very young girl who's engaged to be married, who has kept herself pure. And Lord, she is the one through whom you would bring the Lord Jesus into the world. And as we hear about her today, may our hearts be encouraged that you can use us if we're faithful to you as well. So Lord, as we lift up the Lord Jesus today, uh, help us, Lord, to be blessed and encouraged as we live uh, the life you want us to here below. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, first of all, this morning, let's look at some of the characteristics of God's humble handmaid that we read about earlier. And first of all, we see in verse uh, 26, Mary's lowly and despised residence, which we don't really pick up on unless we go back into history. And this really is seen for us as a contrast to Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah that we looked at last week about his son, John. Now, when the angel came to Zechariah, and this is the same angel, Gabriel, uh, he is an elderly man. He is in a highly respected position. He's serving in the temple of God as a priest, and he's performing the greatest duty of his lifetime when the angel comes to him. Now, he lives in the region of Judea. That's where the capital city of Jerusalem is located. That's where the temple is located in that city. It's otherwise known in Scripture as Mount Zion, the city of God, the center of Jehovah worship. And the Jews took great pride in this greatest of all Israel's cities. But then we come to the announcement made to Mary, and we see some things in contrast. First of all, Mary is a very young lady. Sometimes we don't understand this, that back in that culture of that day, as soon as a young lady uh, reached puberty, she would become eligible for marriage. So someone as young as 13, 14, 15 could be looking forward to having a husband and having children, and that would have been considered the normal stage of life. So Mary is no more than probably 16 years old when these things happen. And we have some uh, 16-year-olds today and a little bit younger, so this puts it into perspective. How mature are you today as a young person? Now, Mary is young, She's a woman. She's in a lowly position. She's, she's, she's poor. And she's living in this out-of-the-way, nondescript town, which is held in contempt by many other Jews from the southern region of Judea because this was located in Galilee. And the name of that town, we're told here, is Nazareth. And it's really the last place one would expect such a momentous announcement to occur. It was a contemptible province. Galilee would have been in the northern portions of Israel. And in the the days that uh, Jesus ministered, 
Uh, it was kind of on the borderland of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles would come down and they would trade and they would traffic there. And John records for us that many doubted the Messiah could come from such a place as Galilee. It was viewed by most people as a worthless town. Luke uses the term city, but really it's, it's more like a village. And few people would ever even have heard of this place. If they did, they would have looked down on it. In the eyes of many Jews, it was tainted because of the presence of those uh, Gentile commercial people, and Roman soldiers would come through there. Nathaniel, remember the story when uh, uh, Jesus met Nathaniel, the brother of Peter? Um. Uh, not not the brother of Peter, but uh, Peter, uh, Philip came to Jesus and told him about this man, Nathaniel. Uh, when Jesus gets there, uh, he finds out uh, he's from Nazareth, and he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? So that was the attitude of people toward this little town. Today, we would view such a place as, as a podunk, a uh, rundown town on the other side of the tracks, a place we'd never expect grand and wondrous things to take place. But this announcement, this wonderful thing uh, that came to this common girl from a common home in a less than common town uh, is something that was prophesied of old. Now you might think that as a result of this kind of an announcement, the birth of a king would, would be in a high place, an honorable place, such as a palace. It would be among the high society folks of the world, the royalty from which you would expect such a person to come. One might think it would be broadly proclaimed uh, in great pomp and circumstance when uh, such a child was going to come into the world. But this announcement comes to a lowly, poor girl in a despised town, in a very quiet, inobtrusive, subdued way. Yet, if we look at the prophet Isaiah, uh, which was prophesied over 700 years before this occurrence, this is what he said would take place in this region. Because he said in chapter 9 of Isaiah, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the northern regions, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. So all this is going to take place in this area where God said it would take place seven centuries earlier. And he goes on to say, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. It began to shine in the announcement to Zechariah. shines now a little brighter in the announcement uh, to Mary. <clears throat> but this is the way God said things would happen, and it does. Now, as we look at this story, we first of all want to note Mary's moral purity in verse 27. This announcement comes from Gabriel, who's sent by God. He comes to Galilee, this despised region in this town of Nazareth, 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, here we have introduced to us the couple. And Joseph is betrothed to Mary. That means he's engaged to her. And we need to know the one thing that is brought out here, and that is he is of the lineage of King David. So that connects him to the Messianic promise, the Messianic line. And although he will be the adoptive father of Jesus, the Jewish culture would trace the history of Jesus back through the father's line. And so he is of the line of King David, the Messianic kingly line. And we'll see Joseph's story next time. Now, this couple is betrothed. They're engaged to each other. And this engagement in that time was just as binding as a marriage contract. So there would be an agreement made between the families. There would be a bridal dowry given, and the couple would then wait one year for the wedding ceremony to occur and the bride to be escorted to her husband's home. Uh, So there's that one-year waiting period. And the only thing that could separate them was either a written divorce or a death. So it was a binding contract. They were actually married, uh, but they weren't coming together conjugally. They weren't going to live together until the final ceremony occurs. Now, Mary's moral purity is stressed here in this passage. She's called a virgin twice before her name is even given. So that stresses her chaste condition. Later on, she'll say, I do not know a man, which alludes to a conjugal relationship. And Mary was obedient then to the Lord's will for a man and a maiden to maintain moral purity prior to marriage. And so she's an example to our young people uh, to be chaste, and moral as you await God's direction for a future spouse. Excuse me. All the other announcements of this type nature in the Bible were given to couples who were already married, who uh, entered into the marriage relationship as they should, but God worked in an extraordinary way because the, the woman was barren, unable to have a child, But Mary has not entered that stage of her life. She's maintained her purity, and her character of moral purity is necessary for God's purpose to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. And of course, the Word of God teaches us that we are being morally pure as well as we trust the Lord to help us be that way. Now, the next thing we want to see here is that Mary is the object of God's grace as all of this comes together. In verse 28, uh, Gabriel comes in. We're not exactly sure what that means. Did he he come into the house uh, in the form of a man? Did he come as an angel? We're not exactly sure, but we're told it's Gabriel. And when he comes in, he has this greeting for Mary. And he says to her, rejoice, highly favored one. 
Now, that's a word uh, of grace. Uh, he, he is speaking of her as one who has grace bestowed upon her. She's the object of that grace. She's the recipient of that grace. It does not mean, as some have interpreted, that she herself is full of grace and therefore a fit vessel uh, for the Messiah. And the only other usage of this particular term in the Bible is found in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. And there it's talking about receiving the adoption. But literally, it means freely bestowed, indicating God's grace outpoured upon all believers. So the free bestowment of grace is what is being focused on here. And Mary is having God's grace freely bestowed upon her. She doesn't have the grace until God gives it to her. And when God um, says, uh, the angel says later uh, that she has found favor with God, uh, that means, again, that God has been gracious to choose her for this particular task that she will gladly receive from him. And as such, he can trust her to do what he has uh, called upon her to do. Over in verse 50, Mary also recognizes this truth. As she says in her Magnificat, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. So she does not see herself as being full of grace or full of mercy, but being the recipient of it. The angel goes on to say that the Lord is with you, and that's a phrase often used to indicate the presence and power of the Lord to help a person accomplish what he wants them to do. <clears throat> what is about to happen with Mary is, of course, humanly impossible, and it will be a one-time event in human history. And it will be the Lord who ensures that that comes about. <clears throat> Now, let's look at Mary's response to this. <clears throat> it says in verse 29, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. So it seems that she wasn't troubled by seeing the angel, but by hearing what he had to say. This is what perplexes her. This is what causes uh, awe in her as she considered the type of greeting that he brought to her. Um, she wonders what this is all about. And as you read the, the stories about Mary in the um, stages of Christ's childhood, she's always going to be in this state of wonder and awe and pondering these things in her heart. Uh, uh, she's no doubt amazed that this is happening to her, and she can't fully take it in yet, but she's willing to submit to it, as we'll find. And Mary, of course, is blessed above women because she's been graciously uh, chosen by God to bear his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Now, the last thing we want to look at here about Mary <clears throat> is her humble submission. And we see this in verse 34. 
and also in verse 38. And as we look at these things, we find three things concerning Mary. We see her faith, we see her humility, and we see her willing submission to God's purpose as she responds to the angelic message. And we'll come back a little bit later to see what the message is concerning this child. First of all, in verse 34, we see Mary's faith in God's word. As the angel discloses these things and he tells about uh, what's going to happen to her and the coming of this child, in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, in our text, we have the question here, how can this be? But in the literal Greek, uh, you can take out the can be. She's saying, how this? That's the literal language. How this, since I do not know a man? And that's a little bit different than the response of Zechariah. Her response is not one of disbelief. It's one of faith. The angel comes and tells her what's going to happen to her. And she says, how this, since I don't know a man, that means she has not had a a, a sensual relationship with a man. She's not married. She's not going to be married for um, probably close to a year. So in her thinking, this is something that's going to happen before her and Joseph come together in holy matrimony. And she's wondering, well, you know, I believe what you say. I don't know how it's going to take place because I have not been in a position where I'm with a husband. Now, Zechariah's question was one of doubt when he says, well, how can this be possible? I'm too old. We're too old to have a child. Mary doesn't say, uh, how can this be true? She's wondering, well, how will this happen? I believe it's going to happen, but I don't know how it will happen because the natural way of doing this is not possible. So she believes what God says, but wonders how it will develop because it's not going to develop along natural lines. And her faith in what God has said instead of doubting is also drawn out when Elizabeth sees her and uh, brings her blessing upon her in verse 45. You'll look there. This is what Elizabeth says. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So in Elizabeth's mind, as Mary comes and they share their joy of what's going to happen to them, she blesses Mary for her faith, for believing what the angel had told her, even though it was beyond her understanding how it was going to happen. So this is an example to us of trusting the Lord, even when you can't fully comprehend what it is he's conveying to you. And again, today, we believe what the Bible says about the virgin birth even though we cannot comprehend fully exactly the, uh, the machinery of it, how it worked, how God did it. He doesn't really explain to us how he did it, 
But he did, and so we believe it because God says this is how things happen. So we trust God in spite of our human disability, so to speak, to understand exactly how he does everything he does do. Now we come to verse 38. After all this has taken place, then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Now that term maidservant is interesting. That's how she alludes to herself. It's a humble self-recognition. And really, the, the English word diminishes the impact of the meaning of the Greek word. Because in the Greek, it says, Behold, the slave woman of the Lord. The slave woman of the Lord. <clears throat> now, another good translation that we find in many places in our English Bible is the term bondservant. And a bondservant indicated one who sells himself or herself into slavery to another. So her view of herself is that she is a vessel that belongs to God. She is in kind of a slave-master relationship. And whatever God says, she will do. Whatever God says, she will believe. And that is showing her humility here. And, And Mary also indicated this in her praise over in verse 48. As he says, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maid servant. So she understands that she is a poor person, an unworthy person, a humble person, who the Lord has selected for a great task. And she believes what he has said and humbly accepts that. <clears throat> Mary uh, would be appalled today by those who venerate her on or nearly on the same level as they venerate the Son of God. Now, let's take a look at one last thing here, verse 38. She says, let it be to me according to your word. Again, you can see the faith there. She believes what God says. She doesn't know how it's going to happen, uh, but she believes the message. And now she is willingly and fully uh, fully, uh, submitting to that in verse 38. And we need to understand the depth of her surrender. God comes to her in the betrothal period of her relationship to Joseph. They have not come together as a family, but she's going to have a child now before the final wedding ceremony. So what would you be thinking? What would the people be thinking was going on? She, they would be thinking that she was unfaithful to Joseph or that they had come together illegitimately. What would her family think? What would Joseph think? What would people be gossiping about in the little town of Nazareth? Would they believe this fantastic story of a virgin birth? Would the marriage contract be broken? All this could be going through her little mind. But she says, let it be to me according to your word. Many folks will not believe the truth. Many folks will not comprehend what's happening. 
And many people would have a question mark every time they saw Mary in their town. And she will bear that burden for her whole life, yet she's willing to trust the Lord with that task he's given. And the Lord gives Mary a reassuring sign that all this is going to take place. We've got to back up a little. <clears throat> As the angel concludes his message, he says in verse 36, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. So Mary didn't ask for a sign, but God gave her one anyway. And she obviously didn't know about Elizabeth at this time because you'll remember Elizabeth hid herself away for five months. So nobody knew what was going on. She now finds out, and this is an example to her, that God can do anything. If God could give a child to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were too old to have one, then God can do what he says to the Virgin Mary and cause her to have a child without um, uh, human involvement. And so that's just an encouragement to her that what God says he will do, he can do, and we just have to trust him to do it. So Mary is an example to us of this humble acceptance of what God says, whether we can fully comprehend it or not. Now, as we conclude today, we want to go back and look at some of the characteristics revealed here about Mary's unique son, the Lord Jesus. And we're going to look at two thoughts here from verses 31 to 33. So let's back up there to verse 31. First of all, the angel says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And it goes on to say, he will be great. So let's consider here his unique greatness. There are at least four ways that this child will be great. And again, remember that when the announcement came to, John, uh, to um, Zechariah, it was told him that his son John would be great in the eyes of the Lord. There is no qualifying phrase when it says Jesus will be great, and that suggests to us that he will have a unique and absolute greatness. And he's going to be unique in a number of ways. <clears throat> Gabriel first says, you're going to bear a son. You're going to bring forth a son. Of course, the Messiah is going to be a man, so you have to have a son. Uh, that in itself is not unique, but he will be conceived in her womb without human agency. That will make him a unique man, a unique person, unlike any other in the history of humanity, past, present, or future. He will not be born with a sinful nature because a human man is not in the picture. And this suggests to us that he is going to be the son of man prophesied of old that identifies him with the human race he comes to save, but makes him distinct from human sinfulness. 
Then she is told that his name is going to be Jesus. Now, that would not have been an unusual name in in that time uh, in history. Luke doesn't tell us what it means, but it comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. That is the name Joshua that we find in the Old Testament. And Joshua or Yeshua means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. So in this context, Mary's child will be unique because he will be the savior of the world. And to verify that, we could turn over to Matthew and see the angelic announcement to her husband-to-be Joseph, where the angel does explain the meaning when he says, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is the special Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, who will be the Savior of God's people. Then we're told something else unique about this child. Uh, In verse 32, he'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So he's called here the Son of the Highest or the Most High. That term was used by Hebrew people to address God without saying his name, Yahweh, which they feared and respected so much they didn't even want to mention the name. So they would say the highest or the most high out of respect for God's person. And looking at verse 35 where it says, uh, he will uh, uh, be the son of God, that's an equivalent phrase. The son of the highest, The Son of God, that is the same person. So Jesus is unique in that he is not merely a man, he is also God in flesh. And the fact that he shall be called this indicates that many would understand and receive that truth because it says he'll be known as or called uh, the Son of God in verse 35. As time moves forward, you'll remember the confession of Peter, who's really the spokesman for the disciples. When Jesus asked Peter who he was, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And even at the cross, you remember what the the soldier in charge of the crucifixion said when Jesus died? He looked up to him and said, surely this man was the son of God. So people realized that Jesus was not any normal man. He was the unique son of God, the perfect man. And then finally, the angel announces that this son, this child, is also the son of David and that he will be given the throne of his father David. Again, the prophecy came to Samuel, through Samuel, that David's throne would be an eternal throne. We know that after 586 BC, no Jewish king ever sat on that throne again. But it prophesied that there would be one coming who would sit on that throne, and when he sat on that throne, that is the point at which the eternal nature of it 
would be finalized and revealed. And so Jesus now is the Messiah who will return as king of Israel, who will sit on that throne, and he will also rule the whole world, and his rule will be an unending rule. So all of these speak of the unique character of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also find here his unique nature is demonstrated in verses 34 and 35. In answer to her question, how this, the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So there's the methodology, but it's not given to us as some kind of equation, is it? It just vaguely explains to us that God will be in charge of this uh, uh, event. <clears throat> Again, how, how could he give us details? This is a mystery beyond human comprehension. But it also wipes away any idea of pagan mythology that would have been prevalent in that day of so-called God's meeting with humans to produce superhumans and, or half-human, half-divine beings. That's not what this was all about. Gabriel's announcement lacks any kind of sexual terminology because it will be uh, according to the creative power of the Holy Spirit and the glorious working of God the Father. And he uses a phrase here, overshadowing, to describe this. And that word serves as a metaphor of the glorious nature of God's miraculous power working. Uh, this is the term that's used to describe in three of the Gospels the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus, speaking of the glory of God overshadowing that situation. And you remember he was transformed and they saw him in his glory, which would have been very difficult to take in, but it was a demonstration of God's glorious power residing in Christ that had been veiled. And so that same description is given here of the overshadowing of the Lord, his glorious power working this miracle in uh, the womb of Mary without uh, human normal intervention. And so that makes him a unique person with a unique nature. And Noda goes on to say that he will be the Holy One. The product of this working of God through the Holy Spirit, the overshadowing, would be a holy child that will be recognized as the Son of God. And the word holy here identifies Jesus again as being sinlessly perfect. We never speak of a child now coming into the world as holy. We might say, well, they're innocent, but they are not holy. They are not without sin. They, all of us have been born with a sinful human nature, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He was pure in nature without sin, 
and he lived a life of perfect obedience of God. So um, whether in birth, there's no what we might call original sin, and there is no committed sin his whole life. That makes him then a perfect sacrifice uh, to be laid down uh, in our place for God to receive that sacrifice for the sins that we have done. And this, of course, required a woman, a virgin, to perform this unique act in history. Uh, In order for the Lord to complete this divine conception, he needed a faithful and humble vessel, a human agent such as Mary. And the holy child became Jesus, the God-man, who alone could offer up a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in him, our sin was judged once for all, and the possibility of eternal forgiveness was achieved. And that's what Christmas is really all about. Now, as we close today, let's just draw a few thoughts. First of all, it doesn't matter what our station or status in life is. God will use anyone who trusts him and willingly submits to his will. We saw that Mary is a great example to us of purity of life, humility, faith, and submission to God's word, even when it was hard to comprehend and even when it may cause future suffering. She believed that with God, Nothing is impossible. We're also reminded that all of us are recipients of God's grace. It comes solely through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we receive that grace, he will ever be present with us to help us live for him and serve him in this world like he did Mary. And finally, we again are reminded of the unique nature of Jesus Christ. God's Son, our Savior. And we really have no more full comprehension uh, of that virgin birth than Mary did. God does not and could not reveal to us how he accomplished it. But that's what the Bible teaches us. That's what is true. And that's what we must believe in order to be saved. You can't be saved if you don't believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's be thoughtful of these truths as we come before the Lord's table this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the people in history that you have used to move forward your redemptive program. We're thankful for Mary, for her humble spirit as she trusted in you, We're thankful, Lord, today for her faith and for her willing submission to do your will. And Lord, we're thankful that you used her to bring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into the world, a perfect, uh, holy human being who became the sacrifice for our sins. We just pray your blessing as we continue this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.